You pressed play on this podcast with the click of curiosity. It is another dimension, a dimension of mind, a dimension where nothing is sacred and everything is explainable. You're streaming into a land of both inside and outside of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the midside. Welcome to the midside where we're installing updates. I'm your host, Justin M. Lesneski, the hopeful romantic, and I retroactively and proactively denounce anything anyone has ever said and ever will say on this show, especially since this show has been going on for over a decade now. So, of course, there are things we denounce that we said in the past. And, of course, there are things we denounce that we'll say in the future. That is how time works. How time works is also that I am getting to the busy part of my year. School is going uh, it's the middle of the cross-country season. Wrestling season starts in, in a couple months. So sometimes I might have to take episodes off like I did last week. Sorry that there wasn't any warning. So you may have booted up your iPhone or turned on your iPhone or Android or wherever you get podcasts on Monday morning and said, hey, where's the midside? I want to go take a trip into the midside. And you couldn't because we didn't have an episode. Well, that's because... I worked a wrestling tournament for two and a half days. So Friday afternoon, I went and ran weigh-ins and set up all the technology. And then Saturday and Sunday, I I helped run the tournament all day, which involved keeping track of everything that was going on, coaching, and then on Sunday, breaking everything down. So uh, I'm still exhausted a week later, but I am bringing you the show the best I can. And we'll see what happens over the rest of the year 2023 until our break. But today, you do get to go on a trip. Let's bring in the co-host joining me this trip from his corner office, identifying as a woman to forgo his white male gay privilege, William Green. Hello, hello. Yeah, exciting uh, two weeks. Uh, lots of farce to talk about, but uh, personal stuff going on. Um, went into San Francisco for the first time since I moved up here. Yesterday, Why? friend's birthday. Friend's birthday. So oh. we went uh, along the wharf, walked along. Uh, I would say about every second or third business was closed. Uh, but there was enough things that were open. We had a, uh Irish coffee at the place that claims that they invented Irish coffee. And uh, then... What? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then When strolled. did that place open? I, I don't know. I don't know the story. I just know that that's what they claim, that they invented it. I find that hard to believe for two reasons. One, there's a country called Ireland. And two, <laughs> people immigrated, the Irish immigrated to the East Coast first. So I I find, I've always found that difficult in California when yeah. they claim they invented and did things first. Well, and then we watched by the factory that claims to have invented sourdough bread. So uh, uh, that's still there at the water. And then uh, I went on, went on one of the most tourist things ever. I went on a, a boat that went under the... The, the Golden Gate Bridge, and then around Alcatraz. Uh, and Justin, I, the whole reason I'm telling the story is, do you want to know what the most depressing part of this whole day was? It wasn't the homeless people or the every third business closed. It was the the self-flagellating like, audio tour while we were on the boat, telling us about all the evil things that have been done <laughs> in San Francisco. <laughs> it was hilarious. I was just laughing at it. 
So it was like an atonement cruise. It was. It was. We were talking about how the uh, Alcatraz was Indian land, and then they, you know, they mentioned as a footnote that they lost their court case. Uh, Wait, the island was? Yes, the island. <laughs> there's there's paint all over the island that says, uh, uh, like, welcome to Indian uh, land or something like that. Or, you know, it's crazy. Uh, I, I mean, my memory and my knowledge may be incorrect, but the island isn't that big, correct? It is not that big. No, it is not. But it's a national park. Seems now. very trivial. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I guess we was, always have to say our land acknowledgments, though, right? I, I I guess it was it it was weird. I mean, like I'm trying to think back. Like even like midsiders in DC have the have the uh, the tourist uh, audio tours gone all woke in dc as well i, I think it's got to be hilarious now if you go through Mon- uh uh what is it uh where uh, thomas jefferson the farm what's it called i'm blinking my mind is blanking it's full monticello of there you go monticello if you go through monticello audio tours all about how many slaves he owned and where they slept and how he treated them instead of like all the other like historically relevant things that happened I mean, I haven't been in the last five years or so, but when my brother got married, and I don't remember what year it was, we spent like a year in the area because he got married in Richmond, and one of the things we did was Monticello, and it wasn't particularly woke at all. I mean, it it's that's where I got a lot of my knowledge of the yeah. fact that Jefferson said that, hey, you guys figure out slavery. We figured out like freedom and getting rid of tyranny in the government and, you know, all the stuff about... um Jefferson being with a slave and things like that, they they explain the reality behind it, which if they were going woke back then, I don't think they they would have. But I mean, that was at least five years ago. So I don't know how things have changed in the five years since. Yeah, well, I, I think it was it was funny because I was just listening to it. And at first it was just, you know, like pointing out things to look at. And I was like, oh, cool. But then, you know, we all the self-flagellation started. I'm like, well, where are we going with this? You know, they even talked about the. uh the uh earthquake you know during the baseball game during the world series and uh mm-hmm. how the bridge collapsed that we were looking at like how it, a part of it collapsed you know the part the top part collapsed or the bottom part and i'm like what like why are we like is this the most famous thing about this bridge you know not the fact that it stood during the earthquake you know it didn't like the bridge itself didn't completely collapse and you know like it, it just was a weird framing of the whole thing i don't know even uh, even the wharf where we ate, there was a sign talking about how that that wharf would be the safest place to be in an earthquake, but that it might turn into an island because the part that connects it to the uh, uh, the part that connects it to the city is gravel, so that could liquefy. I'm like, wh- what? Why? Why are we? Why is it such a bummer? Why does it have to be such a bummer, Justin? Well. We've discussed that before when we talk about things like interpersonal hostility, original sin, right? Uh, unconscious bias or subconscious bias. These are all the same concept. And I actually think that that provides a perfect pivot point here because when we talk about weird framing, I think that leads in perfectly to meme mugs in Life on the Midside. Uh, 
As always, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so through Patreon or Locals. Patreon is per episode. Locals is per month. That's the midside.com slash Patreon or the midside.com slash Locals. We accept any and all support, including, and perhaps most of all, affirmations. The first thing, William, I already referenced it, that I wanted to talk to you about is uh, an ad I saw on Instagram, and I don't know if it appears on any other social media platforms, but I saw it because of... That's what I first saw. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not even ever on Instagram. I was posting a dog picture on Remington and Colt, at Remington and Colt, if you want to see dog pictures, and it was on my feed on my dog, on my Instagram for my dog. So maybe that's why, maybe there's just been so much money poured into popping this into people's feeds, but I saw it because people sent it to me. And I'm talking about non-political people sent it to me and were like, what is going on? What is this? You know, my wife sent it to me and was very confused. So this ad is Joe Biden trying to sell a mug and the mug changes colors with heat. And what it does is it's a, a cartoon of him and essentially gives him Superman's uh, red laser eyes when it gets warm. And then the whole way this is done, the dark Brandon meme, right? And the whole way this is done is essentially what you're saying. It's the it's the dark Brandon meme, which this is where things get very very confusing. Because here's the thing: one, William, before we even get into the implications of the dark Brandon meme and everything in relation to what you're saying about why does everything have to be so negative, who would ever actually buy this mug? Unironically. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's genius 4D chess marketing, like getting all the uh, people who don't like uh, Brandon to uh, to buy it. I mean, I already, you know, I have a uh, someone who works uh, in my company that's uh, named Brandon, so I'm already thinking Christmas gift, and uh, and the uh, uh, staff around the office were already laughing at it. Uh, much like you, this not one of them. One person is political, the other person was not, and they both like. Like you said, they both sent it to me and was like, what is this? Like, well, this is funny, Like, but I don't understand why. Like, laughing at, they're laughing at Joe Biden. They're not, la- you know, I don't know that the, it's getting the attended, uh, intended messaging out, but it might raise some money. Well, that's the point. I, I, I have to think they're going with the, you know, no publicity is bad publicity angle with it because, you know, their, their target base of old white people aren't going to buy mugs like this and aren't going to share this content. So it has to be trying to appeal to, unfortunately saying this now, you know, millennials who are getting older at this point and appealing to them and saying, Hey, pass this meme around. But what's really sort of disturbing about it is what you're saying is that people laughing at it and they're laughing at it because it's absolutely ridiculous. And William, to me, it's ridiculous on the level of, I get that it's a meme and it's a joke and everything, but remember how we've talked about with social media and I've, I've even said before, I don't think candidates and political officers should be on social media because of the sort of dignity and the grace of, of the government and the positions. What about the dignity and grace of the office of the president of the United States? It, William, this played like an infomercial from the, a late night infomercial from the nineties. And now this is what our president is doing. I mean, think about every Instagram ad. Isn't it that, and when I mean Instagram ad, when you look at like the stories, you get these ads in between stories. Now it's like every story you get an ad between it. It makes you never want to 
go on um, Instagram ever, right? Because you're just constantly being bombarded with ads. I literally but it's all only just... go on, on to post a picture. I, I can't stand looking at anything. I turned all yeah. notifications off on it. Oh, I did too. And people get annoyed when I don't respond to their messages right away. It's like, I'm not on Instagram all, all the time. If you need me, you need to have my phone number and you need to be texting me. That's the only way you're going to, res- I'm going to respond to you right away. Or if you call me, if you call me, I know it's an emergency, but the point being it's, it's, it's late night infomercials. That's, that is what social media advertising is now. And now the president of the United States is doing that. Have we lost all dignity and all sanctity as a culture at this point? I mean, that's to me, that's why it's laughable. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, the, the thing that will blow your mind, if you consider, does he even understand the meme? Like is, does he even know where he is? I mean, I guess is the main thing, but like, does he even understand what it means? Right. Or is he just like, Oh, look, a cool mug with my face on it. And I shoot laser beams. Yeah, I, I mean, you're talking about him himself understanding or not? Sorry, I, I pulled yeah, the Dr. Drew Biden, and I looked at a text message. Biden himself. Yeah, does he even understand yeah. what's going on? No, and that's part of the problem. That's part of the problem is the people running his campaign are probably millennials, right? I mean, we want to take DeSantis to task for the people running his campaign, correct? Well, should we not do the same to Joe Biden? that they're leading this almost senile old man. And I'm saying that to be over the top. I don't think he actually is senile. I think it's funny to make fun of him for it, but I don't think he actually is. Is it, shouldn't we be taking them to task for, for leading him down this path? I think so. I mean, we've already seen, we're seeing like incompetence in many campaigns right now. And it's just, to me, it's just so strange. Uh, it it really feels like nobody none of those none of the political sort of parties give a fuck right now maybe there's just too many other things they're worried about i don't know uh it's it's there's no like you were talking about decorum of the presidency i mean didn't we lose that with bill clinton i mean people would point at trump but uh you know Boxers or briefs, you know, I think it kind of started then. I mean, yes, it, it did. And that was um, that was one of the biggest arguments about the whole Clinton thing in the 90s is that was the point is the the office of the presidency had been degraded in a way it would never come back from. Now, you can argue that goes back even further. Right. I mean, what Nixon, JFK, right. All these places. Where did it start? It's but. I think all we can do is sort of ask questions about what is going on with our current application of the technology we have and the resources we have in front of us. And when I look at this, like this continues to make me not want to vote William. And I think that's the bottom line is (laughs) why, why would I vote for any candidate when this is the arena they're playing in? Of course, when we talk about the arena we're, we're playing in, I don't think we can, you know, ignore the concept of uh, privilege in the real sense and, and, and wealth and companies. And I say that because Sam Bankman-Fried continues, William, continues to be farcical. 
Did you see this latest bit that came from his attorneys before I linked to it? No, I hadn't seen it yet. So I got this from a midsider who uh, works in not the same industry, but adjacent industries. And she continues to find what goes on with him hilarious. Because think about how privileged this is, right? So their argument is that uh, the Wi-Fi in jail is bad, and that makes things difficult for him. Specifically, they're saying, we believe that the current solution is untenable, and we no longer have the time to see if the government will be able to devise a plan that works. Almost an entire month has passed since Mr. Bankman Freed was remanded, and we have lost the time to effectively prepare for trial. So here's someone, William, who's been accused of awful, awful white-collar crimes. Uh, I think, has there been any convictions at all, or is it still I think there's been going some to plea deals right. because they're trying to get him. But no, I, I, so yes, probably convictions in the form of plea deals, but no, no, no court cases have happened. Right. So there is pretty obviously malfeasance going on here, wrongdoing going on here. And, and the argument is, oh, the Wi-Fi is bad in jail. As if there is no other way for this person to prepare their defense. And as if this is somehow a violation of his rights as a citizen. Do you think, William, that this is ridiculous as I think it is? That I think, how funny I think this is? Yeah, I, I mean, it definitely comes off that way, the way the story is written. I wonder, though, because we're seeing this in the Trump case as well, where, and this is kind of a technique, I think Mark Garagos has talked about it before, that um, that federal prosecutors use. You know, they have infinite resources, right? So they just, like, dumped, like, a billion documents onto Trump's uh, lawyers and then set the trial date for, like, a month from now, right? Um, so there's a way to frame this and make it, more about getting a valid defense for it for your for your client right but uh complaining about the wi-fi in jail is probably not the way to to do it uh but justin how much of that is the media's take on it versus the uh versus a um super unaware privileged guy i think it could be both well, i think it certainly is is both because i mean essentially his crime is using his knowledge of the way technology works to defraud people but then again can't he isn't he unable to stop tampering with witnesses i mean he can't stop like talking to people like yeah witnesses and others yeah anyway i just wanted to 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 share that tidbit this guy is the gift that keeps on giving uh i don't think it's like farce that you can have super in-depth discussions about but he encapsulates a lot of narcissism in our culture and then Again, what you're saying, it's also the media's, media's portrayal as well. But, you know, then again, when we talk about that, this line isn't always clear. And I think the case of Justin Rowland, you know, the creator of Rick and Morty, who was summarily canceled, is a perfect example of where things aren't always clear. So there's an article that came out this week from NBC News. It says, Justin Rowland used his Rick and Morty fame to pursue young fans text messages show and i read this entire article william did you read the entire article yes yes it was uh, quite okay. lengthy it was very lengthy and what 
I found interesting about it is remember when the whole thing happened with Aziz and Sari and we talked about it and we said like, oh, you know, this isn't like sexual assaults or anything. This is just a socially inept man yeah, yeah. who's in the public spotlight. Yep. I think there's a lot of that in here as well, which to me, isn't that surprising? Like the guy created the character of Rick Sanchez. Like, do you really think that this guy is like a normal is human a being? alcoholic, right? Right. Like this is not a secret. Right. So, you know, there's some discussion of his interaction with fans who are under 18 on social media. Uh, the article is unclear whether he continued to talk to them or he waited until they became 18 once he found out they were under 18. I don't want to address that. I want to address one particular story because I think it continues this drumbeat of we are overemphasizing things and we are not portraying things properly. So I want to read from the article here. In March 2019, Roland messaged a 20-year-old woman from Boston on Tinder. So, William, okay. there is nothing wrong there, correct? Nothing. Okay. Next paragraph. Yes, it's actually me. Yes, I co-created Rick and Morty, his profile read. That year, the show was a cultural phenomenon and a number one comedy across U.S. cable. He was in Boston that March for a gaming convention. So here's my first thing, William. Warning sign for any person trying to interact with this person. He is clearly just trying to use his fame. Yeah. You're only going to write a profile like that if you're trying to use your fame to get in, right? Yes. Okay. Also, if you're in Boston for a convention, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a long-term relationship on Tinder? Putang. Right. So, Roland messaged the woman first. Hey, what's up, bitch? JK. An apparent nod to the voice of Rick Sanchez, one of the Rick and Morty characters. Obviously, I can't impersonate that. Here's another thing. William. Is that a good way to start a conversation with someone, even with the JK? Probably not. But, I mean, he's looking for a certain kind of fan, right? Like, he's looking for, a like, he's looking for like, the equivalent of a rock star pointing out someone in the audience, right? That's right. he's looking for. So, yes, in this case, right. for his to reach his goals, yes. Right. Oh, 100%. So, I, I think that's a great way of looking at it. Is this, again, shows what he is looking for. What he is looking for, which is part of what I'm trying to get at by reading the story. I think that entire side of things is missing, especially when we look at what happens next. The woman told NBC News she didn't watch Rick and Morty, but she knew about the show's success and knew Royland was famous and likely rich. Hello, she wrote. Can we go shopping and have fun and I'll give you a fashion show. We can get coffee and talk. This is the first thing I have a major problem with. William, I have a major problem with two things. One, the media not pointing out what I'm about to point out. And two, the woman approaching things in this way. So the first thing is, when she says have fun, that's an indirect implication to lead the guy on. And then she says, and I'll give you a fashion show. Again, an indirect implication. The idea that you're going to buy things I look good in and I'm going to dress up for that in you. And then the implication is... Well, what are we going to do? Well, you're going to then take them off of me, and we are then going to be physically intimate. Would you say that any male would would read it in that way? 
Yeah, this is a whore telling you her price. Like, th- this is super clear. Except... Wait, this wasn't super clear to anyone else reading this? No, because she did. this is the trick she tries to, to play. And we can get coffee and talk. She thinks if she says we can get coffee and talk, that's going to signal to the guy she doesn't actually want to have sex. So this is an attempt just to use him to get free shit. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay. All right. Because the sentence without the get coffee and talk is only implying physical intimacy. But with it is implying, oh, I'm not just that. And then he writes back, I think I'm down, yeah. I'd be cool with just hanging, maybe a drink, just talk and meet you. So again, he is playing into this by playing into the idea of, oh, we're going to pretend that, you know, we're just going to get a drink and talk and meet. That we're going to pretend that's what I'm interested in. And this is part of the game, right? Mm-hmm. If you read stuff like Pickup Artist Road in like the, you know, the, the mid 2000s or you know, the, the 2010s, they wrote about this kind of stuff, the push-pull where it's all pretend, they, they would call it anti-slut defense, where women have anti-slut defense where they don't want to feel like or seem like a slut, so they say and talk in these ways. So she is putting herself into a situation, and she is leading this guy on who's being very clear about what he wants. The woman told Royland she was 20 and couldn't buy drinks herself, but she would be interested in meeting up. You don't drink ever? Ha ha, Roland wrote. I'm not, I'm actually not sure if I'm going to drink either. So now, William, I would say we start to see a little bit of weakness on his part. And what I mean by this is, do you see how he is, he has the power position. Can, can we agree with that? That he has the power position as yeah. the rich and famous person? Yes. And the one but, with money that's going to buy her things. Right. But he is giving into her framing here. Whereas before you could argue he was just sort of playing along. Like, oh, maybe a drink, just talk and meet you. Where he's thinking, oh, well, she's just saying that and I'll go along with it. Now, do you see where how he's going in with her framing? I'm actually not sure if I'm going to drink either. That's a bald-faced lie, is it not? Yeah. So he's going along with her lie. That night, the woman said Royland took her to a restaurant near the site of the gaming convention and bought her mixed drinks. Okay, I will say that this is the thing that I really disagree with here. Because she's underage. A, you know I'm straight edge and I'm against drinking in general, but I, I, I really think that this is bad. Uh, she took a video on Snapchat that showed the two of them together and the woman drinking a cocktail. Continuing, the woman said she had two drinks and was feeling drunk, probably because she doesn't drink very much, right, William? Yeah. Yeah, if two drinks, <laughs> I mean, unless, unless, he, unless he made them doubles or something. Like two drinks over the well, course of the dinner. And that's sort of the implication that they're trying to go with in the article here. Yeah. Right. Because of all the stories of like Bill Cosby and Danny Masterson and all these celebrities with, with drugging women. They're trying to imply that. I don't think he did. Uh, later left the restaurant to go shopping nearby where Royland bought her some clothes. After that, Royland suggested they go back to his hotel room, which she agreed to go, which she agreed to do. Again, William, can there be any argument here about his intentions being unclear. I think that if I think even at 20 years old, you know where this is going. And if you don't, then somebody didn't teach you properly. Okay. 
Now, this is where things take a turn, and I really, really disagree with the way this is portrayed because I think it equivocates on the concept of consent in a dangerous way. In the hotel room, she said Royland asked her to perform oral sex on him. She said she told him no, but Royland persisted and pushed her head toward his crotch, at which point she said she stopped resisting. From the moment it happened, I knew that it was not okay, she said in an interview, but I felt a lot of different things, like that it was my fault. I felt guilty for asking him to buy me stuff. I felt maybe I owed it to him, and I was embarrassed. So... Here's my thing. This continues, right? And she later has a conversation with him. And, uh, you know, later on says the sexual, this is days later, right? They kept texting. The sexual stuff that happened with us was not handled by you in the best way. And I just want you to take into that into account in future dates. The one wrote to Royland. I know it was not black hair or white, but verbal consent is important. And he said, shit, yeah, I didn't. I'm really sorry. Fuck, that's not cool at all. Jesus, that is not me whatsoever. I literally didn't get consent. I mean, you said after you thought it turned me on to be forced, the woman wrote. I told you I would have preferred it didn't happen. Oh, Jesus Christ, I'm really sorry. And she said, I was like not consenting. I was like saying no and other things. The woman added in another text. So the reason I'm sharing all that, William, is... I don't think she was clear about the non-consenting. In fact, William, I'm going to say something controversial here. I would argue she consented. You know, do am I defending him? Am I saying that his behavior was good? No. No. I I think I think this is too behavior. (laughs) Right, by both people. And that's my entire point. This is socially inept behavior by two people. Right. Him continuing to persist. I mean, look, he's a celebrity and he has the power and the money at that point. When she said no, he should have just thrown her out and be like, why did you waste my fucking time? Because there was an implicit agreement here. Do I agree with the agreement? No. Do I think it's a healthy agreement? No. Would I ever engage in this behavior? No. But that was the agreement he was going with with her. And... The fact that she wasn't following through with it, he should have just thrown her out. But instead, he continued to push, and then she did consent. Am, am I wrong by saying she consented? I don't know. I, it, th- this is one of those things where it all li- hinges on facts that can't be known because you weren't, you, you know, we we weren't there, right? That's true. Like that's true. Because this could be everything from, uh, like when you're dealing with drunk people, what what actually that's true as well, right? Yep. Like it's clear that neither of them really remember what exactly happened. Excellent point. From just from the text messages. So right. This gets into something I think I've talked about before. We've talked about a lot of cases that involve alcohol and uh and date rape allegations. And I've always said that we always say that when the when both people are drunk, that it the only determinant of uh of the only determinant of whether consent occurred is the woman's memory. That's only that that we should might as well just make that the law. Because that's the only if we look at all the cases, that's exactly that, that that's exactly the only determinant. Right. Whether whether it happened or not. 
I don't think that's right. And that's right, being done but here. That's what it is. Right. Well, and and look at here, right? You make an excellent point that it's really impossible to know what actually happened, and it's impossible to know if consent was given or not. But my argument is, even in the the way she's recollecting it, recollecting it, when she says she stopped resisting, it's it's very murky whether that is actually consent or not. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, this you can very the, easily argue that's to, consent. Yeah, this gets back to the about uh, back to the solutions are always given to this that you have to con- continuously give consent. Remember, that's why that's why in this weird, um, and this weird sort of post uh, modern view of sex that you have to constantly uh, be giving affirmative consent in multiple like you know, written, oral, uh, I don't know, other forms, right? Continuous in multiple forms, right? Right. Continuous. And it's exactly what he said to her, that he thought she enjoyed this approach to it, right? He said she thought it turned her on to be forced because there are people who believe that. They believe in the idea of the push-pull and that the woman resists, right? Like I was talking about with the whole anti-slut defenses and stuff. And there are some women who are into that. Now, they didn't know each other, Right. But that's what I'm saying, where the social ineptness came in. These are two people who had never met before who are clearly both socially inept, you know, one because she's a kid and one because he's a a weirdo entertainment writer and creator. And it it came to the situation and we're declaring one person terrible and the other person not. When my argument is, I don't think either of these people are are terrible from this situation. Right. I don't I mean, we can look at the whole of everything he's done and decide whether he's terrible or not. I think it's clear he has insecurities in regards to sex and women. But I yeah, mean, that's definitely. pretty I common. What? But imagine like what what like stepping stepping back from this. This isn't the only uh, stuff that's been in the news this week. Uh, you know, uh, I, I kind of want to bring up Russell Brand. But before we get to that, um. Isn't this, isn't this, how does this connect back to the other story of the potential kidnapping and stuff like that, right? Like, what, what is, we're seeing uh, a bad pattern from, from this guy. We already know he's an alcoholic, all this other stuff. Like, doesn't this connect back to what we've been talking about all along about, men not knowing how to be men like can you imagine being this successful and going after this kind of woman in this kind of way well yeah that's the first thing is if you're this successful why are you relying on social media to i mean just fucking pay for it right (laughs) i mean there there are literal whores that that you would that you could get much easier than this right well less stress and that was the thing like we we as a culture raked charlie sheen over the coals but wasn't that whole, his whole thing? It's like, yeah. I, I'm not paying for it. I'm paying for you to go away after. And it, yeah. wouldn't that be what Justin Rowland is? It's like, I'm paying so I don't have to deal with this BS news story that's now out <laughs> in my character God, assassination. Oh, uh, I don't know. But but I think we have to connect this. I know it just broke uh, this weekend with Russell Brand. You know, he has a very promiscuous past. 
and now uh, all these uh, unfounded allegations are just coming out of, uh, uh, and I say unfounded, not because what, not making any determinant whether they're true or not, but because they're just completely arbitrary, unnamed, anonymous sources about him uh, being inappropriate with a 16-year-old and uh, and I don't know other other issues. But they're all uh, the problem is they're all completely arbitrary, uh, completely coming out of nowhere, and. Uh, I think we can contrast this a bit only in the way that Brand is defending himself. Now we haven't heard much from uh, from uh, Roland about or Roiland, sorry, about this particular incident. But at least in the Brand case, you have him basically saying that, saying like, "Hey, like this is you know, you know, we'll have to deal with this in the legal system." But there's you know, I've been completely transparent. He's written books about his his past and how he's changed. And, uh, and, you know, he's emphatically denied the, uh, the allegations, but it's, I think we're, we're, I think we're, we can track these two cases, whether they're, whether they're guilty or not, right? We could track these two cases and see how different people react to these, uh, sort of allegations. But Justin, is there any, is there any celebrity, any male celebrity who could not have these sort of socially awkward um, allegations turn into rape allegations? Now, I'm not again not making any indi- you know judgments on these individual cases, but I'm seeing the pattern here. Yeah, I, I think the only ones who maybe couldn't like has Donny Osmond been with his wife his entire <laughs> life? Yeah. Okay. Well, All right. And well, I'm th- the point I'm making is someone who's only been with one person their entire life or who has led a very chaste or very religious life. Do you get the point I'm making? Just not yeah. having been in these situations at all. And actually the irony is the irony is remember the Mike Pence thing where Mike Pence said he would never oh, yeah. spend time alone with a woman who is not his wife. Yeah. And everyone made fun of him for it. And they was like, Oh, what do you think you're, you know, you're a predator and that's why you won't be around other women. Does he not look a lot smarter right now? Yeah. It's a, it's a very sad world. If that's what we're coming to. I mean, I think it is. I think as, as a guy, you have to protect yourself because yeah, and I I think it it it's not it's it, uh, in my experience it's it also doesn't matter what your sexuality is, right? Correct. It's it, it's not going to matter, and it's not going to matter whether it was in a relationship or not, because yeah. I think that's the next big thing to come down that hasn't really yet is people do all sorts of things when they're married or in long term relationships, right? They experiment with things, they come up with different dynamics. And think about how at the end of a relationship, people say, oh, well, I only interact with interacted with that person in that way because of the relationship and because, you know, I was being unhealthy because that part was unhealthy. And now that I'm healthy, I can see that that was bad. What if they start applying that logic sexually and using this new cultural approach? And now we have all these accusations about what happened during a relationship. I mean, we already see this sort of said where there are extreme feminists saying, Oh, well, uh, men need to remember they can't rape their wife. And the implication (laughs) is that spousal rape happens a significant amount of the time. Yeah. Where, Oh, say a woman, you know, isn't feeling a hundred percent 
and she still has sex to, to make the husband happy. They would argue that that's spousal rape because she didn't really want to consent. She just consented because she was guilted or, you know, she, she felt obligated. That's where this is all headed, is it not? Yeah, we're getting uh, we're getting into the feelings. We're getting inside of people's heads and allowing them to retroactively change their mind about their feelings, their judgment about their feelings. Well, and we're also doing that. We're using that to equivocate on the definition of consent and we're ignoring all contextual relationship dynamics in doing so. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not atypical for, and I will say the left here, the left to ignore all contexts in order to try and solve a, a problem. And we saw this with something you shared this week, William. Uh, the way California is now approaching the homeless epidemic. Uh, I found a article in the Los Angeles Times addressing this. Uh, and there are two ways I want to talk about this. One is um, the way they're approaching this. And then the second thing is the cost. So let's save the cost thing for a second here. So I want to read some paragraphs from this article about how California and Los Angeles is now approaching the homeless epidemic. The rows of white canvas cabin tents newly erected in an out of the way quarter of Culver City along the back of Bologna Creek have the ambiance of an emergency or sorry of an army field base. Miles to the east in South Los Angeles, more modest camping tents like one might buy at a sporting goods store line the parking lot of the shuttered Lincoln Theater, evoking something more like a Boy Scout jamboree. Though dissimilar in style, the two tent villages have a common purpose. They're the easiest step from the deprivations and hazards of the street to a place where meals are served three times daily and guards are on duty around the clock. So before we continue, William, is that really the easiest step? Justin, this looks like the yurt village in Yosemite, except for they're baking in a parking lot in the sun in Culver City, and we're calling this humane. Not only are we calling it humane, we're calling it easy. <laughs> Couldn't yeah, you just get true. all these people and put them in a warehouse and that would be better? They, it could be air-conditioned. Oh my god. Anyway, the camps are managed by Urban Alchemy. The... The San Francisco-based nonprofit that has rapidly grown into a multi-million-dollar street services enterprise and embodies an elastic philosophy of shelter. Urban Alchemy calls them sleep-safe villages. William, if you had to bet what percentage of Urban Alchemy's million-dollar street services, multi-million-dollar street services, what percentage of that comes from government funding, would you bet? Uh, 99.9%? Yeah, I think that's a pretty safe bet. While some homeless advocates regard the tiny home cabins that have sprouted by the hundreds across Los Angeles as the minimal acceptable form of shelter, Urban Alchemy views tents as a way to create shelter quickly and cheaply without compromising the benefit most valued by people accustomed to living on the street. Privacy, nourishment, security, and a sense of autonomy. William... Privacy, nourishment, security, and a sense of autonomy. If you believe living on the street provides you those things, 
isn't that an example of a mental health issue? Yeah, I would flip that around. If they're on the street and they they want those things, they're obviously not motivated. They're they're not they don't truly value those things because otherwise they wouldn't live on the street. Or the, what I'm saying is their definition of those things yeah. or assessment of reality is so skewed that it's a mental health issue. Because yeah. look, we discuss all the time, you know, we talked about with COVID, we talked about with the way health insurance is and with government running our society and with all technology tracking us all the time. We've discussed issues of privacy and security and autonomy, have we not? Yes. But our, we don't think things are anywhere near far gone enough that the best way is to live on the streets off the grid. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But if someone I, does think that, either they're severely mentally impaired because of an illness or they're on drugs. And yeah. I mean, we see that argument all the time. That's Adam Kroll's argument. This is a drugs and mental health issue. Yes. Anyway, to continue, our philosophy is that we should have a multitude of options for our unhoused residents, said Kirkpatrick Tyler, the nonprofit's chief of government community affairs. What we found in the early iterations of safe sleep is that some people prefer tents because it gave them a sense of ownership. The should question is not being asked here. Should you have a sense of ownership? And that's ultimately the question I have here to read the last paragraph tents also quote allowed them to keep the familiar environment that was around them, but still do that in a place where they are safe, supported and not being victimized by drug dealers or abusers or loan sharks or all of the people that kind of prey on unhoused populations. He said, William, my ultimate problem with this is, is it's evading the problem. It's evading the problem by removing the consequences so basically what happened is we can't build houses for these people. So we're just giving them tents and we're trying to make it. So the consequences of their choices and actions don't fall down upon them. And isn't that only going to compound the problem? Because doesn't this just make being unhoused, being homeless more appealing? Oh wait. So if I, if I don't want to put in the work to get a job and I just want to do drugs all day and I don't want to get the mental health treatment I need, then I get a free tent and I get free around the uh, clock protection because doesn't this article also say there are employees yeah. who are hired to, to monitor and safeguard these places? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. None of these, none of these advocacy groups talk about how many people they've transitioned into back into society, right? They don't, give those metrics that's the only one that matters right like justin there might be folks who are unhoused that need this kind of help temporarily to help them but uh, i think it gets back to two things that we've talked about before one uh there are no men's shelters meaning like if someone's having domestic issues right there's no men's shelters there's no, there's no place for men to go right and Two, uh, there's no uh, there's no mental health hospitals. You know, there's no asylums anymore in California. Reagan got rid of them. Reagan, the Democratic uh, uh, Congress, back uh, back when he was governor of California, and and that pattern uh, was taken up across the country. So there's nowhere to put and treat people who have serious mental 
and uh, addiction problems. There's nowhere to put them. And we, we, we cannot put them, uh, uh, we cannot compel them to, uh, to treatment in California. And those two things have caused this problem to just metastasize. And we're, we're focusing on whether they have a house, whether they have a home, instead of how do we get them back into reality, right? Like you were saying, like, how do we get them back connected to reality in a healthy way? And we're, we're just, we're looking at the, we're looking at it through just a crazy ass kaleidoscope and we're never going to be able to solve the problem. And, and until we really deal with the actual underlying issues. Now that doesn't mean I'm not saying don't help uh, folks, but you, there's, there's, there's a, like you said, there's a short term. If you're only looking at the short term, then you're never going to, you're, you're just going to make, continue to make these perverse incentives that you're bringing up. Well, right, because the the key thing you're talking about here is the bringing them back in touch with reality. Because what's being done here is this kind of lifestyle is being raised up as an equivalent lifestyle to a healthy lifestyle. This is a, the same thing as the you know the the body positivity movement. It's the the subjectivism of values and the subjectivism of reality look ultimately william we shouldn't need women's shelters we shouldn't need men's shelters because if a man or woman is in an abusive relationship with whatever partner they want to be with right even if you know the chair they're in a relationship with is abusing them they should be able to go to their cousin their aunt their uncle their parents and have a safe place there yeah these sort of tent cities or whatever we want to provide them as a middle ground to get the help they need should only be there if there isn't already social scaffolding within their community. But we don't have that anymore. We don't have that anymore because even on the family level, we have a narcissism where, Oh, that's your problem. Leave me alone. B subjectivism. Oh, well, you know, it's all the same. And you know, and C we don't want to get involved because more, the more we get involved, the more, problems it causes us right i mean think about you know if you were to go beat up the abuser of one of your friends you would then go to jail yep we we you know and i'm not i'm not advocating vigilante justice but everything nowadays is you know growing up they always used to tell me oh it's not the original it's the inst- it's not the instigator that gets caught. It's the response that gets caught. And I always never understood why that was. Are we really that dumb that we allow ourselves to be manipulated? But we've put ourselves into, into a position where, like you said, we don't treat the root problems anymore. We, we act like the root problems are equivalent. So living a life of straight edge is equivalent to these people to, to being a drug addict. And there's no different. When objectively, here's the thing which makes this so absurd and so farcical. Objectively, William, how can we look at living in a tent, as you said, in a parking lot in California as the same thing as people that they will look down upon in Texas and in Florida having $100,000 houses that they can have a good life in, a safe life in, a healthy life in? They would say those two things are equivalent, would they not? Yeah, yeah, they would. 
And they're and that's they're the ultimate problem. Yeah, that's the ultimate problem. And what makes this even worse is the cost, right? Because what did I just say? A hundred thousand dollar house in Florida, right? Well, how about this? After visiting the East Hollywood site, the Los Angeles City Councilman Kern Price declined to duplicate the San Francisco model. Westbrook said, "Speed was a factor." was more a factor than cost. At $4 million for preparing the site, much of it for fencing, bathrooms, and staff facilities, the cost was less than the city spends on tiny homes, but still about 44000 per tent. In addition to that, the village has an operating budget of $3 million annually, mostly for 24-hour staffing and meals catered by every table. So again, we see... Three million annual budget for twenty-four hour staffing and meals catered. So if I become a drug addict, I get a free tent worth forty-four thousand dollars, and I get meals catered for me for free. Yeah. Think about that. And then forty-four thousand, William. Is that not a down payment for a house in most places in the country? Yeah, not in L.A., but yeah. Yeah, I mean that's why I said most places in the country. That that's absolutely insane. That price tag is it not? Yeah, I mean, wouldn't wouldn't it make more sense? And I'm not advocating this at all, but wouldn't it make more sense to have a program where you take someone and buy them a house in in some of these other places and and help them integrate into society rather than being in L.A. where there's you know just a cesspool of meth everywhere? Well, even more fundamentally than that. I agree with what you're saying in theory, right? What you're pointing out, right? Just annex some land in Montana and start shipping the homeless there and buying them houses or building them houses. If we take a 3 million budget, 4 million site preparation, that's 7 million and 44,000 per tent. So that's poor person. You're telling me you can't reopen mental institutions and you can't, (laughs) you can't reopen drug rehab facilities for these people I mean I am not for the government doing programs like these but if there's one thing that it's a better use of their money isn't it something like this than buying 44,000 per tent yeah yeah it's crazy is what it is I don't know man I mean I know you stayed in California but you at least went to Northern California (laughs) I just don't know how anyone looks at something like this and is like I'm gonna stay in California this seems like a smart place to be I got I got I got farther away from the LA madness I guess I'm closer to the San Francisco madness geographically but culturally I'm I'm way further away from this kind of madness right so culturally staying in California at all I just just doesn't make sense to me especially in these areas san francisco la like what are you doing why do you want to be around people who say like it's an equivalent lifestyle to be addicted to drugs and mentally ill and not want to get help yeah i don't know and at a certain point you don't know you don't know if you're mentally ill you don't know you need help that's the thing like drug addiction you can at least like be like oh they got themselves in that situation but if you're mentally ill william you don't know right yeah you don't know and you need help you need continuous help for some certain that's, conditions. That's the real tragedy is the people who don't know better and are that hurt and they're not getting the help they need. There are people out there who are true victims of this that aren't even being acknowledged. 
All right, I think that brings us to the end of Life on the Midside. Let's talk about some movies in The Hopeful Romantic with JML. As always, if you'd like to continue the conversation with us during the week, you can do so by joining our Discord channel. Just go to themidside.com or themidside.com slash podcast. Click on any episode link, and in there you'll find the, the join code. Uh, you can drop into the Discord, You know, correct us on some stuff. Uh, Midsider Josh corrected us on some of the stuff about Canada. We were wondering why Canada is so obsessed with like American politics and things like that. Uh, and he has a whole explanation in there about um, Canada doing this to deflect, essentially, and to make their conservative party look like the American conservative party. Uh, he was also asking us about our review of the movie Luck, or the trailer for the movie, the animated movie Luck on Apple TV. So drop into the Discord, continue the conversation. You can also look at the trailers for Terror Takedown. I post those in there. For this week's review, William, I want to talk about A Haunting in Venice. A Haunting in Venice is the third Hercule Poirot movie by Kenneth Branagh. Hercule Poirot is, of course, the detective, the murder mystery detective created by Agatha Christie. She had a series of novels where he would find himself in a situation where people started being killed off one by one, and he had to figure out who the killer is. Uh, this is based on a short story. I believe it's called All Hallows Eve. I may not be correct, but it didn't take place in Venice. The story They took the story and set it in Venice, Italy, and made a movie about a house in Venice that was supposedly haunted by children who were left to die, and they have problems with nurses and doctors because it was supposed to be some sort of hospital, but they were locked in the basement to die. And then a family moves in and the daughter kills herself and shenanigans happen because of that. Here's my one sentence review. Branagh finally seems to have found the sweet spot for the Hercule Poirot adaptations, perhaps because he had more room to work with in the source material this time. Uh, I think perhaps because there wasn't as much because it was a short story rather than a book, William, it allowed Branagh to adapt the story in a way that was more fitting for for movies. Mm. I would say sort of the only major negative here is uh, I just didn't enjoy Tina Fey's performance. I don't think she's that nuanced of an actor where there is sort of a seriousness to these movies. William, have you seen either of the other two? Do you no, see I Murder haven't. on the Orient Express, or no. I can't remember the second one right I now. I remember the trailers from Trailer Takedown, but I didn't watch the movie. Right, so usually they have great casts, yeah. and they give like very uh, classical performances. It's almost like seeing Shakespearean theater, in a way. And I'm not saying it speaks in that way, but there's sort of a gravity to these performances that she just doesn't have as an actress. Now, she's sort of playing like a pulpy American mystery writer, and there is a turn to her character. But I don't know. I just didn't enjoy her. And look, the mystery isn't that sort of 
detailed and convoluted. Like it's not that difficult to figure out, but overall, you know, it, it plays along with this idea of, you know, Hercule Poirot has seen a lot of death in his life and he's sort of burnt out on being an investigator because it's, it's made life not enjoyable for him. And because this is about, you know, is this house haunted or not? Are psychics real? Are ghosts real? It becomes a little bit about, like, what's more important? The afterlife or life? And is the afterlife real? And it discusses these ideas. So it takes a little bit off of the mystery and puts more into what's the philosophy of this detective, especially someone who tries to find a reasonable, rational answer for everything. And I think it succeeds in that way. So ultimately, I give A Haunting in Venice a solid bro rating. Would I say it's the best Hercule Poirot movie by Kenneth Branagh so far? Yeah. Would I say it's one of the best movies of the year? I'd put it top 10 for the year, but I wouldn't say it's up there with Oppenheimer or Guardians of the Galaxy 3. All right. That's a movie that came out or is currently out. And as you see, A Haunting in Venice, we're currently leading into the Halloween season. So we're starting to get a lot more horror movies in theaters and in trailers. So let's talk about some of those. We're going to hit up Trailer Takedown here. I post the trailers in Discord on Saturdays. So you can watch them when you want. You can watch them before you listen to the episode, after you listen to the episode. Uh, You know, alternate if you want. And maybe that could have been an indication for you last week that there was no episode coming because I posted no trailers. But I did this week. So go ahead if you want to hit pause now and watch the trailers. If not, we're heading into Trailer Takedown. Trailer Takedown. First trailer. Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom is the long-awaited sequel by James Wan to DC Films' only $1 billion movie. And I have to say that this movie looks absolutely terrible. Oh my god. Like... The one bright spot in here was there were a couple times where I was like, okay, that's some good line delivery by Jason Momoa. But the cinematography and directing here is way too bright. This literally reminded me of, I remember at a certain point I read an article where people were talking about how so many Westerns were being made that people kind of stopped caring about the genre. And that's what I saw with this. Like, this reminded me of, like, a Western where it just, it fits the formula and they're not putting in a lot of effort here to making, like, a good quality-looking movie. I mean, compare it to the visuals of Guardians of the Galaxy 3, and they're not even on the same level. And I'm not even doing that to do, like, a Marvel DC thing. I just don't want to bring up Zack Snyder. I just want to say that this isn't even on the level of, like, the best Marvel movies. It isn't even on the level of what James Gunn did in Guardians of the Galaxy 3. And then, I I don't know, just the way it started out, it's like, now I'm a dad, and now I have a job, I'm the king. Like, I, I don't know. Just everything about this rubbed me the wrong way, even though James Wan is a good director, and this is a great cast. Every actor in this is a good actor. So this is very strange to me how disconcerting this was for me. Tackle. Tackle. Yeah, this is Aquaman midlife crisis. I, I, the first Aquaman I enjoyed. The second one was weird. 
tonally weird. This one, I just don't like. I love Jason Momoa. I don't know if I would even want to watch this. Like, it looks like it just would be boring. Maybe Wait, this I'm is the third out. one. I thought this was the second one. Well, I, I'm kind of counting. I'm kind of counting the uh, the uh, other movie he was on. What was the other movie? They had Aquaman in. Kind of counting that as the second movie with Aquaman. I didn't mean the second Aquaman movie. So this is the third movie with Aquaman. Zack Snyder's Justice League? Yeah. But the... Well, the second one was Aquaman, right? First one was Zack Snyder's Justice League. He was in that. He was in Aquaman. Uh, And that one was... the, the, The original Aquaman movie was just weird to me. Like... Had good parts and weird parts. Uh, with this one, do you think they're going to make another billion dollars? I think that's the only. This has got to be. They've got to be thinking this is going to save the studio. That's the only thing, right? I think like, they had to have thought this was the only one that made a billion dollars. Jason Momoa is a big star. They're and, just counting on him, right? And I'm right. telling you, as as someone who's not particularly interested in this at all, uh. And it's got Jason Momoa. This d- didn't pull me in at all, right? There's nothing there. There's nothing there. Like, it, the the stakes seem contrived because there's no indicator. There was no indicator that any of this was a thing in any of the other movies, unless I really wasn't paying attention. Well, so, how about the fact that he's like, oh, I need help. I'm going to go rescue my brother who was the villain in the first one and work with him. Uh this is a problem that all of these movies face. Why not yeah. just get anybody from the Justice League to help you? Yeah. Is a Batman available? Didn't we just have a nice movie where we worked with him? Uh yeah. So no. I think I'll I think I'll pass on this one, Justin. I think I might be done with the superhero movies. I think maybe Guardians of the Galaxy 3 will be the last one for me. Tackle. Tackle. Second trailer. Goosebumps stars Justin Long. And it is a series for Disney's Plus that remixes elements from the original novel into a arc across an entire season. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised by this trailer. I put this on and I was like, this is going to be stupid. But I thought the, the cinematography was good. It was the right balance of sort of dark and lightheartedness. Uh, I thought the dialogue w- was pretty crisp. And even without the knowledge, because I read like most of the Goosebumps when I was a kid, because I was at that age when it came out, even without the knowledge of all the different Goosebumps elements that are being used in here, the Goosebumps stories, I think that it has a compelling idea behind it. The idea that Justin Long gets possessed by an evil spirit that tries to kill these kids in all these different ways. I think this could be a good Disney sort of reinvention of, or Disney approach to the sort of scream approach to horror movies and horror franchises. I I, I don't know. I just found this trailer entertaining and it made me want to actually watch the show. So this is for me a Netflix and hug. Netflix and hug. You know, I, this, the, this, I, I understand everything you're saying about this. And this trailer, unfortunately, made me think of the Dragon Prince. Now, hear me out. The Dragon Prince, uh, seasons one and two were pretty good. Uh, it's a kid's show, but it had, it, it was sort of 
being more adult. I know it was animated, different, different uh, kind of show. But and the last season that just came out, it's completely like dumbed down and just like the writing is just. I I think the writers actually changed because it's just like completely shitty. I think. Justin, this is another one of those shows that it's going to just really, really depend on the writers. And it looks like from the, the trailer, like like it could be entertaining. And that surprises me. But for some reason, I'm not holding out hope that they'll be able to sustain. Uh, so maybe it's one of those shows that uh, I watch for one season and just say, oh, that was a nice show. You know, like some of the other shows that I've watched that's been canceled. But like you, I was like surprised that this wasn't trash. So I think I'm going to give it a chance. So that means Netflix and hug. Third trailer. Monsters of California is Tom DeLonge's movie, which I mean, I will also say I was surprised this wasn't total trash. All right. This is basically Tom DeLonge is in Blink-182. He's the guy who thinks UFOs are real. And this is basically his movie where he fantasizes about if what he believes is true, if what would happen to the world. It's about four friends who uh, find out that there are all these government secrets covering up UFOs and aliens, and they go on their journey to discover all of that and what happens. Uh, my big problem with the trailer, though, is visually, this is very, very uninteresting for like the first half of the trailer. And the trailer only really picks up when Tom DeLonge's music starts playing. You could tell he wrote a song for the trailer. And then all of a sudden, it sounds like Blink-182. And you're like, oh, wow, you know, this is this is sort of interesting. But beyond that, I don't know. Like, I like the idea. I like the concept. I like the the line where the kid asks the government agent, like, and he tells him you can't hide reality. Like, I like that. But what about when what you believe is reality is so insane? So I don't know. There's a lot going on here that it's hard for me to tell whether this is going to be good or not. I just, I expected this to be absolutely atrocious, and it it wasn't. It just looked kind of eh. So I'm going to assume William's going to watch this. And if he tells me it's worth watching it, I'll watch it. So we don't have a William and hug button. So I'll just make this a tackle unless William likes it. Tackle? All right. You're absolutely right. You know I'm going to give this a chance. I gave the MGK movie a chance and I, I laughed. I still haven't seen that. It. It was, Is that it any good? It's not good, but it's it was. I laughed. It, uh, you know, for me, like that's a. Uh, Is it I pop bar. punk though? Did you watch it and feel pop punk when you watched it? <laughs> uh, there were parts that I did feel pop punk when I watched it. So yes, I'll watch this and let you know uh, if this is if this is trash or if this is pop punk X Files. So this is uh this is a Netflix and hug. I think again. Netflix and hug. Fourth trailer. The conference is described as a uh, a horror comedy by Netflix, and it's a foreign language film. But I had no idea what the fuck was going on in this trailer, and I don't <laughs> think that's just because of the subtitles. <laughs> it seemed like there were a bunch of people going somewhere for a conference, and then someone in a mask started killing them. I really don't fucking know. Like, look, I, I want to like any horror comedy on principle. Right, like just like I want to like the Tom DeLonge movie on principle. However, this looked worse than the Tom DeLonge movie. Tackle. Tackle. Yeah, I, I, I was just confused 
uh, maybe I got a little hungry, and then I was confused. I don't know what the mask looked cool though, right? The killer's mask. <laughs> that yeah, that that looked cool. But I I have no idea what this is. But sure, uh, I, I no thank you. Tackle. <laughs> Tackle. Final trailer. Totally killer is a horror comedy on the opposite end of the spectrum of the conference. And what I mean by that is Happy Death Day combined a slasher movie with Groundhog Day. Totally Killer combines a slasher movie with Back to the Future. It stars Kieran Shipka from Mad Men, and she's all grown up now. Uh, she gets transported back to 1987, where she runs into her mother at a school dance and then ends up going on like a trip to a cabin with her mother and her three friends who were killed. Uh, the directing is great the art design is great uh the art design and the directing though kind of take and william i i'm I'm really interested in what they're going to do for the 90s eventually and are they just going to have everyone dressed in flannel and act like everyone was grunge in the 90s right because (laughs) i don't think everyone was like this in the 80s but again it's a comedy right it's over the top like the mother who's joking about drinking uh drinking trying cocaine in front of her kids like this is all over the top on purpose uh Long story short, I think this looks tremendous. I am really looking forward to seeing this. I have very high hopes for this movie. Hug. Mmm. Hug. I, on the other hand, just... I I don't know. I'm not huge into horror. This one looks like 80s-tastic, so maybe maybe for the nostalgia, maybe I could enjoy it. But, uh, I don't know. I'd just rather watch Back to the Future and than uh than this i don't know I, this one didn't really turn me on i'd ra- I'll, I'll watch the tom DeLong movie and at least get some some enjoyment out of the music uh there's really very little enjoyment to get out of most 80s music that they're going to pull for this so i will very lightly tackle this tackle all right that brings us to the end what did we learn this trip william i learned that no means no justin what did you learn this trip I learned that it's impossible to know what no actually is. Uh, no, I also learned that you hate horror comedies, apparently. That's just the high bar. It's got to be such a good comedy for me to enjoy it. Just on. Did you like Happy comedy. Death Day? Not really. <laughs> well, see, there's your problem. That's a there's great, great problem. movie. I know. I, hey, I can movie. appreciate it that it's a great movie. It's just not my cup of tea. All right. Well, I want to anyway, thank you for uh, coming on the show and being my co-host. And I want to thank everyone for listening. All of you make me feel a little bit crazy, a little bit less crazy and a little bit crazy, right? Because you enable me talking into the corner of my closet like a crazy person. So thanks for that. Uh, and it doesn't cost you $44,000 either. It only costs you as much as you want to donate on Patreon or locals. How about that transition? Yeah. The midside.com slash Patreon, the midside.com slash locals, or the midside.com slash the store. The midside, not the store, the midside.com or midside.com slash store, midside.com slash the cut, right? Any of those sites, you can support us in any number of ways. That is how we keep the lights on. But most importantly, the best way to grow the show is to tell a friend, especially a female friend, cancel us. This concludes your journey into the midside. I'm Justin Emmonsesky reminding you that if things get tough, take a step back and witness the farce. I'll have a California free day.
apparently while I was in San Francisco, there was some lesbian conference where they're talking about uh, transgender issues. And uh, they were being protested so violently, apparently people tried to break in while they were writing their lesbian bill of rights. So uh, I don't know. It's still crazy in, in San Francisco, for sure. And I had nothing to do with any of it. How is a lesbian bill of rights different from any other bill of rights? I think it was about keeping men out of women's spaces. Oh, but, is that uh, why Lyft yeah. started their new matching thing? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we'll we'll see. I, I didn't. I just saw. I just saw it on Twitter while I was there, and I was like, "Oh, good thing I'm not in that area." I mean, I would assume that's always going on in San Francisco all the time. <laughs> well, probably. 